So, Virgil at Vuitton, what's your verdict? Did it work? It was one of the most amazing fashion events I've ever seen. What, what do you make of that move for Kim? Oh, I mean, genius. Kim's definitely the right man at the right time for that job. What, what, came, what came out this season, I thought, was that the most uh, dominant shows of the season were about this notion of male couture. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to this week's episode of Inside Fashion on the BOF podcast. This week, I'm joined by our editor-at-large, Tim Blanks, who's just come back from a whirlwind of men's fashion shows in London, Florence, Milan, and Paris. And of course, this week's Men's Fashion Week season crescendoed in Paris with the debuts of Virgil Abloh at Louis Vuitton and Kim Jones at Dior. I sat down with Tim just on his way back from the Paris shows to get a sense of what he makes about the takeover of streetwear in high-end luxury men's fashion. And as always, Tim has an interesting perspective on what the streetwear movement means for men's fashion and beyond. So without further ado, here's Tim Blanks, Inside Fashion. Good morning, Tim Blanks. Welcome to BOF HQ. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Imran. Back from the men's shows. Uh-huh. Have you recovered? Oh yes, there wasn't so much to recover from. It was uh, a very, um, it was a good season, I thought. There were, there was, there was some um, peaks um, and there was some lovely level plains, but I wouldn't say there were too many valleys this time. Okay, well, I think in, in thinking back over this men's season, you know, there's probably like, kind of one dominating topic, which is this whole notion that streetwear uh, is taking over luxury, and specifically uh, the men's shows. I mean, what, what do you make, having been through the whole roundabout from London to Florence to Milan and Paris, you know, what, what do you make of this streetwear taking over luxury assertion? Uh, I would say um, in the typical in the typically pendulum, um, you know, the, the way that the fashion has these pendulum swings works in a sort of call and response way that we're already seeing what's coming after that sportswear takeover. And that is this, this quite rarefied notion of male couture. Um, I think it's inevitable when, uh, you know, dads are wearing triple S that, that uh, the people who are looking, f looking for their own modes of self-expression start looking at the opposite, you know, of what, of what has been dominant, the dominant principle. You know, it's always happened that there's sportswear tailoring, sportswear tailoring, not quite as, not quite as graphically as, as it's been happening lately. I guess that's obviously because of social media. But I th what, what, came, what came out this season, I thought, was that the most uh, dominant shows of the season were about this notion of male couture. Okay, so let's, let's tackle the male couture thing a bit later. I mm. did want to address the kind of big debuts that mm -hmm. we, saw, we saw in Paris of um, Kim Jones at Dior and Virgil Abloh at Louis Vuitton. 
I mean, it's interesting because Kim and Virgil are friends and they're kind of part of the same crew. There was a dinner on Sunday night after the men's shows and um, they were both there, you know, at, at a Nike at a Nike dinner. So they're part of the same crew and they're part of, now they're part of the same group. I think you can add a third name to that, to, the, to that duo who is also part of that group in, in, uh, in a way is Jun Takahashi who right. showed his first men's collection in, did a show at the, fir at the first show for his men's collection. He's always presented it, but he's never done one of his knockdown, drag-out spectacles um, Which you for his men's Oh, God, I mean, he, he can do no wrong for me. Right. Um, but I think those, because Kim and Joan are very connected, Virgil and Kim are very connected, and then I guess Virgil and Joan are connected. And, you know, you have somebody like Hiroshi Fujiwara, who's sort of the the godfather of the whole thing, who was also doing something um, uh, in Florence. And um, it just feels, but, but if you look at somebody like Jun, who, who's been so influential, um, what, he does, what he's doing with menswear, and what Kim is doing, and what Virgil did at, at Vuitton, um, you, you do get the sense of a new attitude. Right. So, Virgil at Vuitton, what's your verdict? Did it work? It was one of the most amazing fashion events I've ever seen in all my years, all my many decades on the front lines. Uh, it was incredibly convincing as, uh, as an event about, as a celebration of diversity and inclusion and um, it was like God smiled on the day because it was such a beautiful day. The, the setting was incredible in the Palais Royale, taking over the entire, um, the entire park, making the, the runway run the, the length of the, the park. It was a very, very long runway. Color coding it in rainbow colors, having the teams of people, teams of acolytes or staff or whoever they all were, um, color coded in each zone. So, you know, the, in the yellow zone, they're all dressed in yellow, in the green zone, dressed in green and so on. I, I mean, from the drones, it looked unbelievable. Yeah, we didn't have that view sitting at the no, show, but when you saw it no. afterwards... Yeah, it was... You, it, it was spectacular. It was, it was quite... It was moving, I thought. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously, when the spectacle is, is like that, uh, it was, if you go back and read all the reports, it wasn't, there wasn't so much reporting about the clothes. Um, I thought the show began extremely strongly with this collection of all-white tailoring. Um, Virgil was talking about, you know, how a facility with white crocodile wasn't necessarily the thing that had uh, come naturally to him, but he was learning quickly because there was an awful lot of white crocodile. Uh, and then it went into a middle section where, where I thought the colours and the fabrics and everything got slightly muddy and confused. And then it swept out the end with a kind of tip of the cap to America's favourite fairy story, which is The Wizard of Oz. And I thought those pieces were so eccentric and so, uh, so lovely that it, it just, it, it was really, it, it really validated um, his, I mean, Vuitton's decision, I thought, um, because there was obviously a lot of skepticism about that. You know, Kim Jones is a designer and he, he'd, made such an, he'd made such a mark at Vuitton 
And I don't think Virgil, well, you know, when I said to him something about the harnesses that he was so proud of, that harness effect, where he, he was looking to create um, an iconic piece that would identify Vuitton clothing in the way that a sack dress identifies Balenciaga or a, or a, or a the smoking identifies YSL. You know, he's saying that Vuitton is, is, is famously a luggage company. So how do you create an item of clothing that's, that's iconic for a luggage company? And he settled on the pocket, which is, you know, where you carry things, like you carry things in luggage. And he took the pocket off and made it into all these various permutations of a harness while Helmut Lang did that years ago. But then he... You know, he said, well, you know me, you know my style. And his style is to, as he says, make things relevant for now. So I don't think he's particularly challenged by challenges to his originality or anything. Um, and he's very right in the, in the sense that he made a spectacle that was for now. And, I mean, it was incredible for me. I thought it was incredible to see Kid Cudi on a, um, Cudi on a catwalk. He was um, walking a bit slowly, though. He looked a bit. He was. Uh, he, he sl- I remember seeing him walking down on the model. There was a bit of a the, traffic the, jam yeah, behind him. Yeah, he created <laughs> created a bit of a backlog because he lost the pace of the show. Um, and Lucian Smith, the artist, and just this, you know, it's just this kind of, and then a grab bag of very diverse models. Um, it was. It was such a. It was such a. It was such a narrative, and it was such a, um, uh, it, it was so articulately delivered, and I, I found it extremely impressive. The casting was incredible too. There was one cast of millions. Yeah, uh, and you know, re- basically reflecting every culture on the planet, make often every nook and cranny on. Yeah, planet I mean, Earth. there was one of the Indian models. There were three South Asian models, and one of the Indian models was. Uh, a young man we featured in this story on BOF that Bandana Tawari wrote about this rising group of Indian models uh, in, in Bombay, and that was his debut show. And when he put it on social media, I mean, it was that whole country kind of celebrated because, you know, this, this young kid got his debut. Um, and then you could see similar stories from all over the world of people being represented on that runway who might never have been represented before. Well, I think it's interesting how he gets people to invest in him, you know, not just financially, but emotionally. And um, I guess philosophically now. And it's almost like he started the snowball rolling and it's just going to build and build and build, I think. Um, so, you know, when you think, wait till the next collection, but you can see there's a momentum that, that, will, that will take on a life of its own. I'm curious to see, obviously curious to see what happens when, um, the, when the stuff hits the stores, whether Virgil Mania will um, infect Vuitton to the extent that it's made off-white such a phenomenon. Well, one key question is going to be, if the fan base can afford yeah. Vuitton, right? Yeah. So, like, clearly there was a huge reaction on social media and a lot of... But the price points kind yeah. of leave a lot of people out. Well, you know, there's, what, what do you reckon? Like, say, looking at the bags, because the bags are the big takeaway with um, everything at Vuitton, the supreme collaboration and so on, of Kim's. Um, you know, Virgil talks about the 3%, the twist that he adds to make things his own. 
And so in this case, he, he was pointing to these fairly I can basic, you'd call them Damier bags, and he'd put this gold, this some um, orange ceramic chain on them, which was his three percent. And I mean, it was a little thing, but it, it, it did establish a, 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 a kind of ownership. Um, but the bags themselves, I mean, there were, there were actually there were plastic bags in the show, there were vinyl bags and the clear vinyl, yeah. very very richly coloured vinyl bags, which were maybe more the sort of thing that people might gravitate towards in, in, in looking for something new. But these quite ordinary Vuitton bags with the orange ceramic chain, it's going to be quite funny to see, you know, the hip cats de jour carrying these bags that are only Virgil because they've got an orange ceramic or chain on Or it's a really clever signature yeah, for people yeah. who want to have a piece of that moment that yeah. he created without having something, you know, crazy. What would be fiendishly clever is to sell the orange ceramic chains on their own so you can go and hold them one You can virtualize, you, you can virtualize your entire life yeah, if you want to. Exactly. Yeah. So do you think it was a good decision having seen the first show? Well, having seen that, yes, it was, a, it was uh, I mean, Vuitton being the, LVMH being the biggest luxury company in the world, I suppose there's a supreme irony in this celebration of everyone because obviously LVMA obviously Vuitton isn't for everyone um, and maybe it's a sort of nice pipe dream to think it possibly could be but it won't be but, but it was sort of there was a sort of there was an irony I suppose but I think it was a very I did move. wonder what Mr. Arnaud would be thinking yeah as he sat in that show you know under the beating sun mm. with that long multi colored rainbow runaway and you know this this moment happening i wondered and, you know, the, yeah. and he was the one who brought mark jacobs to vuitton back in the late 90s and created a whole ready-to-wear collection that didn't even exist for that brand and you know it's been 20 years since that moment and like i wonder what he thought as all of that was well going you, th by. you wonder you wonder what the old guys think when they're looking at something which represents such a massive change in the industry, yeah. whether it whether it whether it translates into dollars and cents, like conceptually, it's yeah. a shift yeah. from the notion of the the creator in his eerie, you know, like uh, the, the the solitary driven yeah. creative soul. Is I guess I guess in a way, it's like all the other disruptions that have happened in Paris over the past few decades, when you know an outsider like a Galliano or a McQueen or a Marc Jacobs came in and created a huge creative disruption and lots of people thought it was the wrong decision or weren't sure and then... But you think about all of those changes were inside baseball still. Yeah, yeah and this, this, is, this is like a Shazam. Yeah. Yeah. This is like, you know, top item on the evening news kind of thing. Yeah. It did, it did reach the masses because I was hearing about it from my own um, circle of friends, of people from outside fashion who are all very aware of what was happening. And that moment was not an inside baseball moment, right? Because it was so wide reaching and the way it, it kind of resonated and ricocheted all over social media. So, and then kind of the extension of this conversation, of course, was Kim Jones left Vuitton and took the role at Dior. And we, you and I went for a quick preview with Kim, the, the 
the day before the show, and the place was positively buzzing with energy and people coming in and out, and Naomi Campbell and Yoon and Bella Hadid, and there was so much action going on back there. And you could you could kind of sense that people, Stefano Pilati and Jerry Stafford. Yeah, there were so many. It was many, like a salon. I mean, it was, it was on fire. It was kind of amazing. What what do you make of that move for Kim? Oh, I mean, genius. He wants. I think Kim wants to be a couturier. I think he's proved himself on so many other fronts. A couturier for women. I think or he wants a... to be couturier, period. He wants to design, he wants, he wants the freedom to completely design a world. And um, he, it was so interesting that, you know, his, Kim is, is, he's a great traveler. He loves animals and nature and, and everything to do with the natural world and, and the more the more um, remote, the better. And so going to Dior, the, the travelers of a, at Vuitton, he could do all of that because travelers, Vuitton's DNA, but going to Dior, he, the, the travelers is, he took a different kind of journey. He journeyed into Christian Dior himself's brain pan and made a collection that was drawn from women's couture tropes. With also a look, looking at what John Galliano did with the same kind of, you know, John Galliano had the same kind of thing in mind when he was designing at Dior. And I thought it was just so ingenious and so beautiful. And some of it, some of it was extremely strange in the way that when you look at people making flowers out of feathers and then setting them in you know, what was that? Well, it was, they, they, they were, yeah. it was, things were layered, the layers. That of, was incredible. Those yeah, just, la and you couldn't, if we hadn't gone for that preview, like you wouldn't no. necessarily have been able to spot that. Oh, you couldn't. There you were couldn't. Le Marier like feathers encased in, would you call that plastic? Yeah, like, I think. It was but, incredible. But, but then there was organza and, 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 and the lace. So many, so many, and the lace yeah. and uh, so many layers of, um, of, things going on it was so suggestive and it was so romantic and it was so fragile and all of that is extremely radical especially given what Dior Homme has been you know under under Eddie Slaman under Chris Van Usher the skinny you know the home of the skinny suit and the sort of um rock and roll not sort of rock and roll edge like very a, a sort of temple a, a temple to minimalism and then Kim comes along and makes this lush greenhouse. Well, in a way they had to, I mean, I thought it was quite clever because of course everyone is awaiting Hedy Sleeman's arrival at Celine and most people expect that he's not going to veer too far away from his, you know, template that he executed first at Dior Homme and then at Saint Laurent. So because Dior Homme has kind of stayed into the you know, even after his departure, stayed with that kind of same vibe. They had to make a really big aesthetic and creative shift at Dior Homme because they were going to have the real Hedy Sleeman doing his thing at at Celine anyway. So, I guess from that point of view, it made sense that they had to 
they had to shift the, the, the strategy. Well, it's, Kim's definitely the right man at the right time for that job. Um, and, and also what, what he wants to do, I think, dovetails very, very well with, with, what, like what, you, with what you're saying there, with what the label needed. Um, I'm not so sure that Eddie's going to go and do what he did everywhere really? else. Oh my God. I mean, I would be disappointed in a way if he well, did. Well, let's see. That's going to make for a he's very a, interesting... Yeah, he's been away for long enough that one would assume, and he's looked at the world as it rolls on without him, one would assume that he's not going to just dive back in where he left things. I cannot wait to see what's going <laughs> to happen there. Um, how much of Kim's success comes from the way things are put together on the runway, do you think? You mean styling? Yeah. Because it was very interesting. You, you've seen this for years. I mean, I don't normally go and do previews. I just tagged along with you this time. But it's really interesting for me to see things in the um, atelier or in the, in the, what do you call that? The showroom before, you know, hang, you know on, the, on the racks. And then to see it put together on the runway, and it has to make an impact both when you look up it, look at it up close, and then also on the runway. And I thought, on the runway, even if you missed, you weren't able to pick up the details of the the things we were able to observe at the preview. It was put together in such a like, it just felt like a big shift. You well, know? it 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 was. He's always worked with Alistair Mackey at Vuitton, yeah. and this season he's working with Melanie Ward, who was Helma Lang's right-hand man. So he didn't, he didn't work with Alistair. No, this time. was Hel Melanie Ward. Was Do you know why he stopped working with Alistair? Um, I think, I think uh, you know, the, the, there's an opportunity for a, there was the whole Dior thing as an opportunity for a new sensibility. And yeah. um, I mean, Al Alistair is, a genius, as, as we saw in his styling for um, the McQueen show in London, which was super, super strong this season. No, in McQueen Paris, I mean, in, in Paris, Paris the McQueen yeah. show in Paris. Um, a super strong show. Um, and then Melanie, I, I, it's interesting, you, don't, you wouldn't necessarily say it was a woman's touch, because it... It's not, but there's a, there's a romance. And the way that there was always this romance in what Helmut did, even when it was minimal, there'd be some beautiful, some, some beautiful, almost feminine thing. And Kim did talk about the feminine touches in this collection. And it's true, there were. The, whole, the use of florals, the use of fabrics like organza and so on. And I think... He wanted to do that, and working with Melanie helped him to realize that um, even more successfully. Um, it could be something as simple as that. Um, you, you mentioned McQueen, and you also touched on uh, this idea of male couture earlier on in the conversation. I get the sense that you think the street, we've reached peak streetwear and the, the next horizon of aesthetic um, or kind of trend is already starting to peak, peak through. I was sitting, you know, at that Vuitton, uh, the Dior show rather, uh, I was sitting next to Ben Cobb um, and he uh, you know, was looking across the front row and everyone was wearing a pair of ugly dad sneakers from one brand or another. So I, 
tapped him on the shoulder. I said, do you think, do you think we've reached peak ugly? Peak sneak. Peak sneaker? Like, is it, he's like, this is, it's over. You know? Given, and given that he is a man that you will never once see in a pair of No, trainers. I mean, he's so true to his, current, his yeah. own look, which I think is really yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't like veer from This one season thing. even more for some strangely, some funny coincidence. He seemed to be attracting more attention from street photographers. And well, because he stands out. He, he's, he, because he's dressed. Yeah, he's tailored, dressed and he like, looks, he looks. Dress shoes. He's you always know. got his look. This is the, this is the, this is the magic word, that, that the, the magic term that's been thrown at me by, by retailers who have to know what they're going to be selling next. Dress shoes, you know, that... Um, that their most adventurous customers now want ye olde leather shoes. And, and it's actually, I thought, Kim, if you notice the shoes in the Dior show, they were a shoe, but they had a sort of hint of a trainer sole. Um, so he was just... Fusing the two together. The past and the past, present and future in a, in a shoe. Um, let's talk about the uh, Margiela show, which... Um, I thought was incredible. Both at the show and then when I saw the pictures afterwards. What did you make of it? Which was uh, expressly male couture. That's exactly what John was calling it. Yeah. Um, I, th I thought it, it, it lived in pictures, really did, where you could actually look at, th instead of things belting past as they did in the, in the show, I mean, seeing from the minute we walked in and saw those Tony Mattelli sculptures, the sort of degraded, decayed, classical sculptures, I thought, why did they put fruit all over them? Because there was a slice of watermelon here and a scattering of strawberries there and a half-chewed mango there, you know, all over these statues. And they were bronze, trompe fruit. They and were incredible. I mean, you've never, I've never seen anything they like looked, that. I loved people trying like to pull them off and, like, and eat them. Eat them. Yeah. They, were, that, that, they were just, they, and they set the tone in a funny way for what John does, um, you know, with the, the, a sort of classicism, a, a subverted classicism, but very, very, the, the trompe the way he uses trompe the way things are slightly different, um, things are not what they seem to be. I thought personally, I'm thinking back, looking back over the pictures, there were, when he did a, he did a really good podcast talking about the, talking about the collection. I love hearing him talk about stuff. But I love the way his voice was yeah, treated. Yeah, it sounds when, amazing. When he says the words mercurial oil. Or, 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 or he says artisanal or yeah. however he says it. And it, it, it felt like there was just smoke wreathing all his words. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting listening to him talk to that, talk about the collection because the whole idea of the shrug and the way he showed those extremely beautiful coats. I mean, this is artisanal, so these are the artisanal Margiela, so this, these are one-offs. I mean, these won't be, these pieces will be produced to order and probably one, you know, one only of each thing. But the notion of the shrug, that you don't put the coat on, you just put it over your shoulders, so it becomes this cape. And then he cuts, he cuts that story into the, into the piece of clothing. So there is this, that 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 sort of it's just slightly dis disconcerting that nothing is ever quite what it seems. But then the thing I loved was that he the thing I loved because of course it's my kind of not my era but one of my obsessions is the way he matched um, all these really beautiful fabrics and 
vintage kimono fabrics and mm -hmm. recutting things and, and veiling things and, and, and making these jewel-like clothes, matching them all to vinyl pants, which is so New York dolls. Um, and with these, these heeled boots, the decortique, you know, these, these, sort of, these sort of abstract revisions of cowboy boots, basically, but in, also in very, in very kind of, kind of makeup-y colors, you know, or makeup-y colors for the vinyl as well, like pink vinyl pants. And it just reminded me so much of when the New York Dolls did their communist, <laughs> their communist revision in the red pattern. And it, 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 it's this, it's this reconceptualized, re reconceptualization of masculinity that he talked about a lot. You know, masculinity, femininity, new ways of looking at things, orthodoxy challenge, which he's always done. But he's, he challenges in this very kind of, where beauty becomes something quite insidious. And it's very, very seductive. And I thought the pictures from that show were, were, were fantastic and sold sold the whole idea really, really brilliantly. I mean, I, I'm, I can't wait to see how, how he will revise all of that for his ready-to-wear collection in October when he's going to show men's and women's together, but using those ideas sure. that he presented in and this collection. And do you think this, as you alluded to earlier, do you think this signals the next wave in, in kind of a menswear trend? Well, yeah, in the sense that it will filter. Yeah. It will. Other designers will look to yeah. that show. Yeah, and yeah. And they'll look at what Kim did and they'll see that there's an appetite for, uh, there's an appetite for things that are ambiguous and beautiful. And I mean, you could say that about London. You could say with what somebody like Charles Jeffrey is doing with Loverboy is, uh, is a precursor in everything about, I mean, that attitude has always existed in London, yeah. um, these clothes that challenge gender. But I guess it was always an, a kind of fringe thing. And like now this whole idea It's always of, been a London thing. Which, it's always yeah. been a London thing, but it's also been something that existed on the fringes that never really hit the mainstream, which will be, for me, the most interesting thing to see is how these ideas might filter into more mainstream menswear because at the same time that all of the streetwear stuff is going on and this male couture thing is going on, you have tailoring brands in Milan. Like how do, how did how did that all feel at Pitti and in Milan with the Well I only went to Craig Green's show in yeah. Pitti. I went to Craig I went to Florence to see the Craig Green show, which I thought was wonderful. I thought it was a perfect balance of of um news from him and his wonderful humanist ethos when he designs, but also a great introduction to, for, to, uh, for people who didn't really know, hadn't seen a Craig Green show. Yeah. Um, so you, it, was like a, it was like a really great um, A to Z of Craig Green, sure. I thought. And I actually, I would say I've, I hardly ever see fashion shows where I want every single piece. Actually, I never see fashion shows where I want every single piece, but in this show, I was just from beginning to end, it was just, I, I thought it was an, a, a wonderful show, which full of, full of very desirable clothes, which um, I wanted and really established him as a, as a, as a, as a leader. And also, unfortunately, 
left London with a great gaping hole in the middle of its schedule. Yeah. Um, so, but in Milan, where you have these like more classical Italian tailoring brands like Zenia and Brioni and Canali and all these that had gone through this resurgence when tailoring was the, you know, the, the kind of predominant menswear trend. What happened like in this moment of streetwear with potentially the onset of this kind of more, you know, gender fluid uh, or this fluid um, approach to what menswear means. What happens to the tailoring brands? I mean, that's, there's a big business for them still, clearly. There's guys going into Wall Street and other places with suits on. But what happens to the tailoring brands? you think you know, they're the suffering? Worst, I think the worst possible thing they could do is try and absorb what's happening right now because um, it will leave them looking... They'll be hung out to dry when it all switches back to what they were doing anyway. Um, very, well, that's kind well. of what happened at Valentino, right? Were they... I, well, the thing is, what worked best for me in the Valentino collection was the stuff that was Valentino, the beautiful embroidery and the, and the, and, um, the, incredible, the un incredible craft that Valentino does so well. He, Pier Paolo Pacioli, has been absorbing the influence of the street for a while, the uh, parkas and tracksuits and trainers and so on, very successfully. I mean, Valentino is one of the first major yes, brands yes. to do the trainers thing. Yes, right? and make, and those do, trainers yeah. were that they, key were, they were incredible them. trainers, yeah. but they weren't the sort of they ugly jumbo. They weren't trainers. that Balenciaga no, ugly weren't. dad sneaker. No, they he he he. This this time, I I felt I felt he he went maybe a bit too far in that in in that direction. And I was liking the, um, as I said, I was liking the things that, you know, the, 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 the incredible embroidery on the back of a parka, for, on the back of a, a parka, yes, it was a parka, um, and, the, and, the, and the handwork, the bead, the beading, the, he was talking about, he, he worked with Sid, um, worked, worked with people from, um, you know, the uh, Tyler, the Creators, gang and and Naz I think was in there somewhere and he'd done their spirit animals on um, sweatshirts beaded their spirit out it, it was it was a story but it felt a little bit like um, you know the danger there is the me tooism um, not hashtag me too but I'm doing this as well yeah it know? doesn't feel pure, it doesn't feel authentic no. because it feels like you're trying to latch on to stuff that you're seeing happen, but doesn't is not something that you relate to, right? You see, what is, I, I love what Alessandro Sartori does because his obsession with fabrics and and um, with new techniques and so on makes his makes his clothes technically very interesting. Um, I thought that sh everything about that show was a, was a great show. The, the setting, the Oscar Niemeyer building by the airport in, in Milan, and um, and then the, the sportiness of it was interesting, I thought, coming from a label like Xenia, which is the sort of tailoring for Wall Street 
yeah. label. Um, you know, you, you're sitting watching and thinking, well, will those guys buy into this? It would be nice if they did, but will they? Um, and that was kind of what I walked away from those collections thinking. Um, I didn't see Fendi. I thought, I, thought, I thought Fendi looked fantastic. I thought the story seemed really good. But it was, it was interesting, again, um, you know, Neil Barrett working with a new stylist, Katie England, who was famously McQueen's right-hand man, famously Ricardo Tishy's right-hand woman, famously Ricardo Tishy's right-hand woman. I think Givenchy. she's also working with him at Burberry still. Really? I think oh, so. I, thought, I think I saw something on Instagram where they were crediting each other or mentioning each other. Well, it was a great collection from Neil, yeah. um, which I thought was a kind of masterclass in absorbing um, what's in the air and applying it to what you do without it compromising your well, own his, authenticity, his approach, as it were. His, his approach lends itself really well or it lends itself more easily, I think, to the that zeitgeist than, say, I don't know, Valentino or something. Um, so, where does menswear go from here? What happens next? What are you watching for? As you know, the next set of men's shows isn't going to happen until January, really. But there will be some men's on the runways in September, you know, with the the brands that have chosen to, to show men's and women's together. Where do you th what do you think is going to happen next? Well, it, it, it's what's going to happen in fashion next is something that is, that is um, plaguing me just because of what is happening in the world and um, the context that um, we're looking at in which fashion is, that which is fashion, the, the things that fashion will be called upon to respond to. I just was thinking, thinking what's happening with this, going to happen with the Supreme Court. That's going, to, that's going to create a whole new wave of resistance in, in society, which fashion will inevitably reflect in some way, I reckon. I, I came away from this season um, quite, you know, like I said, there were, there were a, a few peaks, but there weren't really valleys. And, I, and it was quite reassuring, I thought, to see um, so much, so many really beautiful, desirable things, if you were so inclined to desire them. I mean, you, you look at someone like Rick Owens, I think, who, because he stands outside everything that's happening, tends, tends to be a little bit not, not forgotten about, but you, ha you have to address him as a separate entity. And his show was just phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, just... I saw you posted another photo on your I, Instagram. Because there were, you couldn't take a bad photo of that show. Right. You just couldn't. Yeah. It, was, it was so epic. It was so pagan. It was like, it was like a, a hole opened in reality. And, yeah. you, you know, you shoved through onto a parallel universe. And the clothes were... Um, the, the, the clothes that people will buy out of that collection were actually extremely straightforward for him, but still expressing his, his own aesthetic. Um, I mean, the, the, the other collections that we, we haven't talked about, like Junior Watanabe and Comme des Garçons, were, were all... I thought, the, I thought the Comme des Garçons collection was a... Um, crazy suits. I mean, sort of in the male couture um, yeah. 
arena, but already dissecting it, (laughs) already ahead of it and looking back at it, which is just what she does in that strange out of time way as well. Um, but I, I'm, no, I'm looking forward, to, the idea of male couture means that men's fashion would be, at the very least, incredibly visually exciting again. Yeah. Um, and well, for me, it was, uh, it's been a while since I went to, and I, I only did the Paris shows, but it's been a while since I've gone to any fashion week and felt such excitement and interest and conversation around the shows. I mean, the last few women's fashion weeks for me have felt very... Everyone's quite cynical about it or jaded. And I just felt like this last week in Paris was really exciting. You know, well, it was what, like, why we... we go to Fashion Week? And people are genuinely excited about what's happening. And, are, and even if they don't understand it, um, they know it's something. Well, know? what are we hearing all the time about how men's sales are outstripping, yeah. men's luxury sales are outstripping women's sales? That, and, and also men's, fa- men's fashion gives men so many more opportunity, opportunities to take risks than it used to. I mean, I you know, mentioned Rick Owens or Comme des Garçons, but look at Tom Brown, yeah. who did a show of, of the same elements, but like totally revised. Like gigantic, the first half was gigantic NBA player proportions. The second half was sort of real people proportions. And... It was, as the show unfolded and, and you got into the rhythm of it, it suddenly you realized you were seeing an incredibly strong, um, timely Tom Brown show. Not one you, 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 where you just appreciate the entertainment value, but you also see real, a real proposal, um, a, an incredibly seductive proposal. I felt... You know, sometimes you can feel you drank the Kool-Aid and you walk away and you think, well, what's, what, really, what, what really does this say to people? What, what would this say to my brothers, for example? And I guess, I guess what it is saying now is that you, you have nothing to lose, that um, there's... Like I said, this is there's there some wonderful options for risk taking, but that are also going to make you look pretty amazing. Yeah, and there's there's a whole variety. I mean, for me, the, this idea of menswear being kind of boring and hard to um, there's not that much you can play around with. Menswear designers are always more limited in their options of what they can do. But if you look at the sheer variety of options available for a man now, however you want to dress from the, you know, tailoring all the way to male couture, I mean, there, there's real choice for guys now to express themselves through fashion, which I think is, that's great. Well, you know, it's so funny when you, when you, you know, if anybody's, when people say men are scared of color. Yeah. And then Dries's collection was all color. And so was Tom Brown. Yeah, right. It was. It, it's so there's it's, color. There's different silhouettes. There's stuff like Rick Owens, which is, you know, it's in, in its own world. There's fragility. Yeah. There's the fragility of Dior. There's the the sort of warrior pagan strength of Rick Owens. There's, and then there's thousand dollar sneakers from Balenciaga. Uh-huh. And, yeah. Well, well, we'll see what happens. Um, it was good chatting with you, Tim. You're off to Couture now, so you'll yes. see. Real couture. Uh, I look forward to chatting with you about that when you're back from the couture shows. I'm going to 
give it a miss this season since I did the men's shows. But have a good time at Couture. And um, that's all for Inside Fashion this week. I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. I'm bidding you farewell from BOF HQ, which is bathed in beautiful sun. And perspiration. <laughs> and a bit of perspiration just because it's so warm here in London. But we are not complaining because this has been an incredible week of blue skies uh, and 28 degree weather, which is lovely. Um, we hope that you've enjoyed this conversation. If you have, you might be interested in learning about BOF Professional, our global membership community from the Business of Fashion, which keeps you up to date on everything you need to know about the global fashion industry, including, I must say, um, the point of view of our most respected editor-at-large, Tim Planks, who always has something interesting to say about every fashion show he sees. So for those of you who aren't BOF professional members, we are offering our BOF podcast listeners an exclusive 25% discount on an annual BOF professional membership. If you want 25% off your first year of an annual membership, click on the link in the episode notes, select the annual package on the page, and enter the special discount code PODCAST2018 at the checkout and you will get 25% off. And don't forget to share your feedback on the BOF podcast, uh, either on social media or in the review section on your favorite podcasting platform. And don't forget to tell your friends about the BOF podcast. That's all for this week. We hope to see you soon.